Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. It feels really good to sing Christmas songs, doesn't it? And to have Izzy back. It's wonderful having her back. Sure. I guess I'll take my Bible. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. So, I have always loved stories. And growing up, my parents would read me books. And I would sit there for an hour at a time. Uh, just listening, wondering, imagining that I was in the story. But sadly, what happens is the older we get, uh, we start thinking stories are just for kids. So when we read about fantasy, adventure, mystery, epic battles, kings, wizards, we eventually think that that's not the real world. That getting older uh, turns stories into something just to be used for escape, to get away from what's real for a while, to embrace a fantasy. But what if the reason we love stories is because we're actually living in one? What if our longing to defeat evil, to never die, to experience a hero, for tears not to exist, for other worlds. What if all of these longings in us point to this master story that we're living in? And I think that's why I love the Christmas story. It's truly the story that all others point to. It sums up perfectly our deepest longings and our hopes, not as another fairy tale, but as history, as what God did in time and space. And so I can remember um, sitting on my bed as a kid, maybe nine or 10 years old, Bible open, reading the Christmas story on Christmas morning. I was a strange kid. (laughs) And sitting there trying to imagine what it would be like to look into the manger or to huddle with the shepherds uh, in the middle of the night or to try to imagine the song that this angelic choir was singing. And I never want to lose that sense of wonder, but it's hard not to. And as much as I want to hang on to that sense of awe, uh, my heart easily gets numb to the things of God. And so today, I just want to tell you the Christmas story. Not because you haven't heard it before, but because sometimes we just need reminded. And so this morning, I invite you to wonder. Um, I invite you to put yourself into the story. So I'm just going to tell it. Afterwards, I'll give like a five-minute mini-sermon, and and that'll be it. Uh, But let's be recaptured by what God has done and what this season represents. So to begin, I want to take us back several decades before Jesus was born. The year is 44 BC, and two events shake the entire ancient world. The first is the death of Roman ruler Julius Caesar, the most powerful man on earth at the time, who's betrayed and assassinated. In his will, Julius appoints his grandnephew, Octavian, to take over Rome. 
So that's the first event, a tragedy that leads to a transition in power. The second event happens four months later during one of Rome's famous Olympic games. In the middle of the festivities, in the sky, there appears a comet, unlike anything the world had ever seen. And the comet appears for seven days and can even be seen in the daytime. So Octavian, now in charge of Rome, takes the comet as a sign from the gods. And with the whole world gazing upward in wonder, he declares, this comet is the soul of Julius Caesar. This proves that he is a god. And so, heir to the throne, I, Octavian, am the son of God. And it's the perfect propaganda for his new role as Rome's leader. Because Octavian knows that leadership doesn't come without rivals. There's plenty of men lined up who covet his power, who are eager to see him fall. So he wastes no time and he proves himself by defeating his enemies in battle, eventually earning the title Augustus, which means exalted. So to proclaim himself as the exalted son of God, he has coins made that remind the entire world of his glory. And anytime someone buys something in the Roman Empire, there is Caesar's image greeting them. And it was genius. Every coin was a pocket-sized piece of propaganda, all meant to further his status. So I wanna show you one of these coins. Um, Here on the left you have uh, the image of Augustus and his, his title, Caesar Augustus. On the right, you have the Latin for divine Julius, and it's set into the image of the comet that amazed the world for seven days as a reminder of the divinity of both of them. Here's another. On the left-hand side of this coin, you have a Greco-Roman god, which is basically to say that Caesar is one of them. Then on the right, you can probably make out Caesar's name. He's standing, this is Augustus, standing on the earth as a sign of his dominion and his power. And then there's this abbreviated Latin phrase, divi filius, which means son of God. So let's fast forward to 9 BC, just a few years before the birth of Jesus. An inscription is written about Augustus And here's what it says. It says something. There it is. All cities adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. And who being sent to us in our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. This is the backdrop of the Christmas story. And Luke knows all of this as he writes chapter two of his gospel. And he knows how Augustus, king of the world, came to power. So if we can go back to that map. Look at his empire. Take in the vastness of his dominion. The land of Israel sits at the far eastern corner of his his kingdom and it's just this tiny sliver of land swallowed up in the sea of Rome. But neither Caesar nor anyone else for that matter has any idea what's about to unfold in that tiny land of Israel. 
But this is the story Luke tells, and so it begins. At the height of his power, a few decades into his reign, Caesar Augustus takes an inventory of his empire, and so we read this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. And so the long arm of Augustus's rule reaches Israel. Rome had this extensive tax system, and it paid the bills, and so there were no exceptions. Everyone had to go and be counted, including these two peasants from Israel, Mary and Joseph. Like it or not, they had to go. So Luke writes, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. So not only are Mary and Joseph from Israel, but they're from Nazareth. This little, no-name town that certainly would have been forgotten if not for the things that took place there. It's not a place anyone would have thought the Messiah would come from. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples later says about Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So the stage is set. On one hand, you have Augustus reigning from the epicenter of his empire, and on the other hand, you have these two Jewish peasants traveling from a dusty backwater town. And it's here in the story that Luke starts to show us that there's more to these events than meets the eye. So he goes on. Joseph went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is anywhere from 90 to 120 miles, depending on which route you take. Mary's far along in her pregnancy, and so she dreads the journey. It means being away from home when she gives birth. It means traveling over rocks and dirt, looking out for thieves and those who prey on the vulnerable. So why does she go? Maybe it's the controversy surrounding her pregnancy. To explain the baby in her womb as from the Holy Spirit has not been convincing to her community. And so she's the talk of the town, she's the shame of her family, she's the target of derogatory comments and judgmental stares, and in many ways she's utterly alone except for Joseph who stands by her side. And even he, like any sane person, did not believe her at first until God showed him the truth about the boy Mary was carrying. And so the two of them set out. And on the surface, these two are nameless in the eyes of the world, hardly noticeable, but Luke shows us each step they take is guided by the hand of God. And every mile brings them closer to seeing God's promises come to life. And Luke points to two of these promises. The first is centered around where they're headed, where their destination is. Over 600 years before any of this happened, the Old Testament prophet Micah wrote these words. But you, Bethlehem, there we go. Though you are still small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. See, it's here, it's in Bethlehem, where they're going, that the promised Messiah was said to come. And now it's happening. 
So Augustus, the census, Mary's pregnancy, these things were orchestrated by the hands that formed the world and these hands are now guiding history to its proper place. But there's a second promise Luke shows us, tucked away in the story. Okay, Joseph is a simple man and he earns an honest living. He's so humble that later in Jesus' life, people question him because of his dad and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? The son of really nobody? And it's here in this narrative that Luke clues us into something. He says, Joseph has royal blood flowing through his veins. He's from the line of David. And again, we look back to a prophecy, this time from Isaiah, who wrote centuries before any of this happened and said this about the Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And the world doesn't even know what's happening. Right now, Israel sleeps and waits and groans under the burden of Rome and deliverance feels a million miles away. Little do they know that their waiting is almost over, that generations of their ancestors' questions are about to be answered. And so this unknown, engaged couple make their way toward Bethlehem while this cruel machine of Rome keeps grinding away unchallenged, unquestioned. And I love how G. Campbell Morgan describes this moment. He writes this. As to their earthly condition, Mary and Joseph were entirely insignificant and yet touched by Roman authority. The decree of Caesar reached Nazareth. Joseph must bend the neck. Even though the royal blood of David is coursing through his veins, he must go up. But look again, two individuals marching under the order of Caesar Augustus, look at the woman, her tomb, or not her tomb, her womb is the tabernacle of the Son of God as she travels. I love that line. Her womb is the tabernacle of the Son of God as she travels. Look at the man. The one passion of his life is to guard that woman. Things are often not what they seem. If we can only climb high enough to look down on this world from heaven's vantage point. So finally in Bethlehem, heaven's plan is unleashed. And Luke writes, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So in an instant, history changes. The incarnation takes place, which means God becomes a human being. The word becomes flesh and dwells among his people. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem, though none in the town have any idea of the glory that is now among them. So let's take a step back. Let's look at the whole story so far. There are two kings in the world. There's Augustus, with the armies of Rome at his fingertips, and there's Jesus the infant 
shivering in the cold. One issues a decree to the whole world and the other still hasn't learned to speak yet. One is exalted, one is still unknown. And the Christmas story compares these two kings. What will become of them? How will this baby with only his parents and a manger compare to a ruler like Augustus? And the answer to this question comes in an unexpected way to unexpected people. Because there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. In the ancient world, there were few things that would keep you outside the safety of city walls during the nighttime. But in the hills around Bethlehem, shepherds braved the darkness to watch over their flocks. And this seems like an odd place for God to announce the Messiah, the great king. In the wilderness where thieves hide, where wild animals roam, it's an odd group to receive the word of his birth. Shepherds, these shepherds are unclean because of their constant contact with animals. It's a low status job. It's something that few people would do voluntarily. And already we see another contrast between these two kings, Augustus and Jesus. Because Caesar surrounds himself with royalty and feasts and the powerful and the impressive, while King Jesus announces his birth to sheep herders in the hills. And as he says later in his ministry, the last will be first, the least will be greatest. And in the stillness of night, as the flocks huddle together to sleep, the shepherds settle into the darkness, just a few flickering lights in the distance from Bethlehem. Their eyes alert, their ears open, listening for any rustling in the darkness, predators who would prey on their flocks. And then it happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. So suddenly for the shepherds, the darkness is no longer dark. Before their eyes appears this blinding light of an angel and it's the purest light they've ever seen. And so instinctively they tremble gazing into the eyes of an angelic being that in their wildest imaginations they couldn't describe and they immediately sense their smallness, their weakness and somehow they know that they shouldn't even be here. Illuminated by God's glory, they realize that they're unworthy and like Isaiah in his vision of the throne room of God, their hearts cry out, woe to us, we are ruined. But like the Proverbs of old, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and these shepherds are about to find out that wisdom has just been born and is laying in a manger. And the angel's voice rings out with an unnerving authority saying, do not be afraid. Words of assurance greatly needed in this holy moment and it slowly starts to dawn on the shepherds that they're receiving an, an invitation like no other. Though considered unclean by their own priests as shepherds, they're invited to go and see the great high priest who makes all things clean. 
Their impurity is no match for the king who washes hearts white as snow. And the angel continues, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And maybe the greatest difference between Augustus and Jesus is their definition of peace. See, Augustus had a claim to fame and it was known in the the Roman world as Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. He had brought a sort of stability to the empire that had really never been seen in ages past. But Augustus's peace came at a precious cost, at the expense of countless lives and the shrapnel of death and misery litter the empire, serving as a sort of dark monument to humanity's version of peace. But Jesus offers something different, the peace of a true savior. He comes not to secure the borders of an empire, not to build a towering palace, not to squash opponents in military conquest, but to restore peace between God and humanity. Caesar's greatest enemy is anyone who threatens his territory. Jesus's greatest enemy is sin and death itself. Both are called savior, but Augustus is a slave to the sin inside him and powerless to the sin around him. But this new baby born in Bethlehem will one day speak the words, your sins are forgiven. He's the savior who has come to save people from their sins. He will bring souls from death to life. So how does this story end? What becomes of these two kings? Augustus will die and his kingdom will crumble. Jesus will also die, only to be raised back to life, defeating death forever, establishing a kingdom that never ends. Caesar's comet in the sky will fade into legend, but the true light of the world will shine brightly through all future generations. Caesar, the the counterfeit son of God, stamped on coins, will rust and disintegrate. But this, Luke tells us, is the story of how one quiet night, the real son of God came into the world. And this is why Christmas is the meta-narrative. It's the story above all other stories. And as we're recaptured by the wonder of angels' songs and shepherds' joy and the birth of a real king, what does it all mean for us? This story refuses to be trapped in the first century. It refuses to be turned into a cute, sentimental story that warms the heart. The story speaks directly to you and to me. And so, a couple thoughts for you guys. I I wanna point out uh, a couple ways that this story is our story. 
What is this whole account meant to do to us and in us? How are we supposed to respond? Other than gazing into the past uh, and being inspired by what we see. Here's, here's the first. This story takes seriously that there are things very wrong with the world. The story takes seriously that things are wrong in the world. And as humans, sometimes we like to pretend that things aren't that bad, that if we just work really hard and we muster our best resources and we think positively, that then we can fix the world or we can fix ourselves. And it sounds really good until people give up or until we don't have what it takes or until evil continues to flourish in the world. And that leads us to a place of despair because we're not as good as we thought we were and our solutions aren't as effective as we hoped that they would be. But the Christmas story is brutally honest about the darkness in this world and the fact that we're actually powerless to fix it on our own. And it explains that sin is the cause of that. And things are so bad that a savior actually had to come The world is so deeply broken that a superficial healing will not do. A savior is needed. Divine intervention was needed. That's at the heart of this story. And so there's a freedom to this because the Christmas story gives you and me permission to look around at the darkness in this world and say, this is horrible. We don't have to numb ourselves against it. We don't have to try to rationalize it. We don't have to ignore the darkness that lives inside of us, pretending like it isn't there when we know that it is because the Christmas story says you and me and the whole world needed saving. And that's why the incarnation happened in the first place. And at the same time, even though the Christmas story looks directly at the darkness and brokenness of the world, straight in the face, it doesn't leave us hopeless. So here's the second This story tells us that there's a God who acted to right the wrongs. There's a God who did something to make the wrongs right. And though sin surrounds us and fills us, it doesn't define us. Darkness does not win. A light has dawned. And there's two aspects to how God has stepped in to confront darkness. There's comfort and there's confrontation. The comfort comes in knowing that God deeply cares about how you've been hurt and he deeply cares about the injustices that you have suffered. That should bring you comfort. The angels call him Savior, they call him Lord, they call him Prince of Peace and make no mistake, Jesus will war against the darkness and the evil of this place. That's our comfort. And then there's confrontation because Jesus will also confront the wrongs in us. And if your understanding of this story is that Jesus will slay the dragons all around you but ignore the dragons in you, then you have the wrong story. He came to change the human heart. And sin in us is something that has to be slayed continually, daily, And that also is at the heart of this story. Our condition is so serious that God actually had to take on flesh to come and make the wrongs 
right. And I know that sometimes confession feels like giving up on ourselves. It feels like exposing ourselves. But at the heart of this account, when you come to Jesus, you are coming to a gentle king of grace. Friends, confession is like coming home. That's where healing happens. The Christmas story confronts every single one of us, not with condemnation, but with the spirit of life and peace that flow from the king of peace. So the story takes seriously the wrongs in this world. Number two, the story tells us there's a God who's acted to right the wrongs. And lastly, this story reminds us of how small we are. We spend so much time trying to prove and show how big and how significant we are in a myriad of ways. We all do this. The problem is, the greater we try to make ourselves appear and feel, the smaller we actually become. And so, look at Jesus' birth because it's so magnificent and the depth of his love is so breathtaking that all attempts to earn any of it are immediately frustrated. And the incarnation didn't happen because we deserved it. Just like the angel didn't appear to the shepherds because of their worthiness, but like the shepherds, we are invited to the king to gaze at him, to learn from him, to behold him. And so I think the Christmas story invites you and me to take a break from yourself, to get outside yourself for a second and to gaze at the one you were created for. Do you realize the reason why we pour into crowded stadiums at concerts is because we long for the transcendent. We want to experience something bigger than ourselves and so we sing our lungs out with thousands of other people. This is why we pile into movie theaters to, to throw ourselves into stories and imaginative tales and things that feel bigger than the daily grind of our lives. But much of that is misplaced. If you really want to feel small in the way you were intended to feel small, then look at the king who was born in Bethlehem. Look at his glory. Allow it to shrink you down to size. And when that happens, you will not hear God speak over you. Because you are small, you are insignificant. But yes, you are small, and I came to save you that your worth does not come from yourself. It doesn't come from what you can do. It doesn't come from your attractiveness or your power or the kingdoms that you have built on your own and for your own name. Your significance is not in yourself. It's in the glory of another. It's in me. And so that's the Christmas story. And I invite you to be carried away by it, to be captured by it, I invite you to return to wonder, to fight for wonder. There are two times a year, uh, Emily, my wife, and I will push back normal life and at least try to, to recapture wonder. It doesn't happen accidentally, it has to happen intentionally. And the two times 
our Holy Week before Easter and the month of December and Advent leading into Christmas. And every day, whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever we can manage that day, we will either read parts of this story, read something else that we found that reflects on it, just sit together, because this just does not happen on its own. So I encourage you, fight for it. Put effort into it. Let this be a a small flame that ignites something larger for you this season. Because God has so much good for you in those moments. He really does. And it's not too late. Christmas is coming fast, but pursue wonder. Feel small. Open your life to him. Let his light fill the darkness. I wanna close with the words of St. Augustine as he describes what took place in Bethlehem. He says this, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The night Jesus was born, the story of heaven collided with the story of earth. Let's live in that story. Let's pray. Jesus, as I have recounted the story of your birth, just the reality of how short my words fall uh, is, is before all of our eyes. Lord, none of us can do this story justice. Lord, but we thank you that you have passed on the narrative, the, the greatest narrative the world has ever seen. And Lord, I pray for the rearranging of hearts this morning and in the, the rest of this Christmas season. Lord, I, I pray for a rearranging of hearts and agendas, that we would not try to fit this story into our lives, but that we would reverse it. Lord, that we would find our lives, that we would define ourselves in this story. God, fill us with wonder. Lord, let us feed off the glory of your presence, Lord, to be filled with gratitude and joy and hope as we think about what happened in Bethlehem. So Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in your name, amen. So we are gonna go right into the table. Um, We know that this part of the story we read today centered around Jesus and the cradle, but that his life would take him to a cross. And so uh, I invite you to think of Jesus the infant 
the king that was born vulnerable and exposed and in the humblest of conditions and think about how this was his destiny. This was his mission. This was his gift and his sacrifice. So with all of these things filling our hearts, come to the table as you are, as you are ready. And as a family, uh, let's do this together. Awesome. Well, it's been great to be with you guys. A couple announcements before I read something quickly and then we're out of here. But uh, number one is we have participation boxes placed around also as you exit. So uh, if you would uh, feel led to participate with us financially, please do that. And second, uh, Andy has created a survey um, that's basically uh, meant to collect your feedback uh, on our community. And we're going to take that feedback and basically craft the next year of our church uh, based on what you guys say. So what you'd like to see happen. Um, There's all kinds of questions on there. So please go and do that. He's looking for at least 50 people to fill that out. So if you go to uh, voxoc.com, you'll see the survey there and shouldn't take but a couple minutes. So if you would go and do that, that would be great. Uh, I'd like to send us out, um, especially in light of just getting to gather around and and listen to the story of Jesus' birth. Um, There's a moment in Philippians chapter two that describes the incarnation, God becoming flesh in beautiful terms. So I'll leave us with this. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And with those words, I leave you guys. Have a great week and we'll see you back here next Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.